no one ever packed more meaning into fewer words uh, than did Jesus. Uh, his words, he said himself, were spirit and they were life, but they're also very brief. He could say more by saying less. The entire Lord's Prayer, as we've come to call it, takes less than uh, 60 words. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount spreads out over Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, and yet you can read it in about 12 and a half minutes from first to last. His parable of the prodigal son, which has been referred to as the greatest short story ever written, along with the wonderful parable of the Good Samaritan, these are over almost before they start, and yet they pack quite a punch. But the topper of all toppers, in my mind, might be just a few verses at the end of Matthew 21, where Jesus paints a word picture which puts the hearer in a box, answering in a way that uh, the hearer does not want to answer. In fact, speaking more personally, it asks a question we don't want to answer the way we have to answer. He says, a man had two sons. And he came to the first son and said, son, go and work for me today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But later he regretted, he repented, and he went. He came into the second son and said, likewise, he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two sons did the will of the father? That's the entire story, the entire parable, just a few words. And of course, what we'd like to say is that polite boy, the one who used the right words, who is so pleasing and charming, and we might even say swarming in the way he responded, I go, sir. Don't you miss the days when you heard more sirs and ma'ams and more politeness? Uh, words which have uh, largely lost their usage. It's nice to hear a sir, uh, nice to hear a ma'am. He said, I go, sir. And yet the problem was he, he didn't go. And the first son seems to be very rebellious. We don't want to side with him. Because he defiantly said, I will not. But of course he, like the prodigal son, came to himself. And he repented, he regretted what he had said, and he went and did what he was commanded to do. And so when Jesus asked the question, which of the two did the will of his father? We'd like to say the polite boy, but we know we have to say the one who actually did what he was told to do. And as Jesus first tells this story in Matthew 21, that's the answer grudgingly given. Well, of course, the, the first son, the one who actually did what he had to do. For just a few moments this evening, I'd like for us to consider some ways in which we, if we're not careful, can back ourselves into the corner of saying, as it were, I go, sir, and yet not going. Uh, number one, oftentimes we have the best of intentions at the time of our conversion, 
at the time of our baptism. When sins are washed away, everything becomes new, and the world is before us spiritually. And the Bible refers to that situation as a life-changing, life-altering situation. It's a new birth. But also, the imagery is given of a marriage situation. Afterwards, we are actually married to Christ. Paul makes that analogy in Romans chapter 7. We're married to Christ. The church as the body is the bride of Christ, for which Christ is said to have given himself in Ephesians chapter 5. And if you put that picture of a marriage alongside our relationship with the Lord, you realize there are other things that are common for both of them. Uh, there are the vows taken in marriage, which used to mean something, which still ought to mean something. If words mean anything, if promises mean anything, those vows have to still mean something. When we promise until death do us part, we'll be true to the vows we made. And you know, and I know, we both know, we all know what it means to, uh, to renege on those vows, to be unfaithful in marriage. Well, we have been married to Christ. Uh, the time of that ceremony, as it were, when we before were not married and now we are, it takes place at the time, at the moment of our burial into water and coming forth as new creations. Uh, when thus the new birth has taken place, now born of water and spirit, we are new people, a new creation, and we, in the process of that, have made some promises. You remember that Jesus warned some that they weren't counting the cost of following him. And if you wonder what that cost is, he makes it very clear in Matthew 16. He's just said that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, death itself would not uh, withstand him building his church and how he would soon go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be crucified but be raised again the third day. Now that well-known text in Matthew 16 which follows the I will build my church statement is followed just a bit later by Christ saying this. This next is not out of context but it's on the heels of what he's just said. If any man come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. Or what is a man profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, what's Jesus saying? Well, I'm going to give my life in death to build my church. And death itself won't stop that church from coming, won't stop that church from growing, won't stop that church from existing. Death won't stop it. And I'm giving my life in the process. And those who choose to follow me, they're making a similar choice for their own lives. They're giving up their own lives in sacrifice, whatever that means. 
if it's a matter of time or money or effort or even life itself, whatever it means, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me, having first denied himself. So wouldn't you agree if that's what Jesus said about the matter, that as we become Christians, those, as it were, were very clear vows we're making, understanding what it means to be a child of God. And so it's as if at baptism we're saying, I go, sir. Here I am, send me. What you want me to do, I'll do. Where you want me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want me to become, that's my life from now on. I'm not mine, but Christ who lives in me. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians 2? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or as Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, the first part of the chapter, to live is Christ and Christ is life. And so yes, we make a promise in coming to Christ and obeying the gospel in baptism itself. I go, sir. Are we serious? Or are we like that son who said, I go, sir, and then did not go? But second... The songs we sing. I've heard for years the, uh, the trope that it's as wrong to sing a lie as it is to say one. And usually what that means is you shouldn't sing unscriptural songs. And it's interesting, we all have different ideas of what those might be. This isn't a lesson about that. But it's just as true about some promises we make in the songs we sing... And the question, do we really mean what we're singing? My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. That's a big promise. I'm turning my back on sin, I'm not doing it anymore, it's behind me. I have a new resolve to stay away from those things that dragged me down before. It's hard to repent of something ahead of time. It's hard to live a life apart from sin that way. Years ago when I first started preaching, I had a conversation at a dinner we were having together with uh, uh, Wendell Winkler and my family and myself, and he was talking about a gospel meeting he'd had just a week or two earlier. He said, the strangest thing happened to me at that gospel meeting. He said, it was a weekend meeting. It was uh, Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and then that was it. And he said, here we were on Saturday evening having the service. And here at the end of service, this, uh, this, uh, this young lady comes down, sits in the front pew, and, and she wants to repent of the sin of, of adultery. He says, though, she wants it to take effect on Monday night at 9 o'clock. And he said, that's the first time I ever heard of somebody deciding to repent ahead of time and make the forgiveness somewhat retroactive, I suppose. Uh, that defeats the whole purpose of what we're talking about. 
And a lot of the Christians, though not perhaps that cavalier with the whole matter, uh, play rather fast and loose with promises they make. I go, sir, I'm going to stay away from sin. And yet, the minute we leave the church house doors and we get into our lives as we live them, they get into corners that we're backed into, get around people we shouldn't be around, and we end up thinking things and saying things and doing things we know aren't right. But that's okay. We'll, we'll make it up next Sunday when we come back again and say, all the follies of sin I resign. Do we mean what we sing? Or I'll work till Jesus comes. Well, you have to start before you can keep it up. You can't persevere at something you never have started in the first place. I'll work till Jesus comes. A lot of songs in the book are about work. <laughs> and as we sing along, you might remind yourself, do I really mean what I'm singing? Now, everybody doesn't do the same work. We all haven't got the same abilities or opportunities before us, but we all have to do what we can as long as we're here, as best we can, with what the Lord has blessed us with. That's an obligation for every Christian, to do what we can with what we've been given. Oh, but I'm not a ten-talent man. I'm not a five-talent woman. Well, take your talent and get it out to the ground where you bury it and do something with that one. Jesus taught that we should do what we can with what we have. And when we sing, I'll work till Jesus comes, or to the work, to the work, or so many other songs that say much the same thing, it means that we actually have our eyes open for doing something that would help the cause of Christ, help our Lord, help those around us to be built up and edified in the Lord. It means we actually are looking for something to do. And so sometimes the songs we sing belie the intentions we have or the, uh, the performance that we show later. I go, sir? Well, we say it. We sing it. Do we mean it? Do we live up to it? But then this last, I think it may be even more problematic than these first two. I hate to get into your private prayer life but I'm going to for just a moment. I think sometimes in prayer we, we say, I, I go, sir. What does the Bible teach us we should do in prayer? Well, we should pray for others in intercession. Uh, we should pray for ourselves, uh, asking for God's help and blessing and care over our lives. But also, in almost every place where the Bible teaches prayer, it, it joins that with thanksgiving. And so a good portion of prayer should be in thanking the Lord for what he's given us. After all, we should be thankful people. And we express that thankfulness by the way we live, yes, by the songs we sing, absolutely. But also, we express that thanks and the prayers we offer. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I will that first of all, or first importance, prayers and supplications, intercession and giving of thanks be made for all men, even to the kings and those in authority. 
and we could spend more time than we have this evening just running down passages saying much the same thing that our prayer should be with thanksgiving whether you're in Ephesians 4 or Colossians 3 Philippians chapter 4 so many passages thanksgiving is a part of prayer so what happens now stay with me I'm about to make you upset what happens when we pray Lord thank you so much for all you've blessed me with we lift our head from prayer, and then in our ordinary, regular lives, we spend most of it complaining. Now, in which are we telling the truth? Lord, I thank you so much. What a miserable day this is. Can you believe the kind of day? Oh, the weather is just terrible. Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you so much for the wonderful day we're having. Well, which is it? Which is the truth? And in that case, the way we live is more true to what we really believe than what we're saying in the few moments of prayer that may be somewhat contrived. When we say thank you, that's saying, I go, sir. I mean it. I'm going to live that way. If you pray Thanksgiving, you need to live Thanksgiving. But... If that's not uncomfortable enough for me as well as you, even more so this next one. These are Christ's words. You know them from the model prayer he teaches his disciples to pray. One example of that is in Matthew chapter 6. He's taught how we should not pray like the, the Pharisees and even the heathen, those who would use much words in their prayer, or pray to be seen and heard of men in their prayer. Instead, we should pray in secret and pray in this fashion. And one part of that prayer he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. Depending on your place and your translation, the idea is clear. Lord, you look at the way I'm treating others and treat me that same way. Do we mean that? Well, you don't know what they did against me. You don't know what they said about me. You don't know how they hurt my feelings. Of course I can't let it go. Of course I can't forgive them. But Lord, forgive me. Forgive me my debts as I forgive those indebted to me. Do we mean it? Well, we pray it. Do we mean it? And what I'm suggesting this evening and this, this, this brief period this, together is, is the fact that if we're not careful, we can end up saying something, promising some things, singing some things that we just don't follow through with almost on purpose because we separate our religious life with our ordinary life. Well, that's what I do at church. That, that's what I do in my devotionals. That's what I do in my special spiritual time. And then I get down to some real living. Well, if the Bible teaches anything, if the New Testament suggests and enforces anything, if Jesus taught anything or the apostles taught anything, it's this. Our religion is all or nothing. It's all the time or never. It's not just when we're here in our good clothes. It's during the week when we're wearing our dirty clothes. 
is not just here with those who believe like we do. It's during the week when we are being waited on or helped or working with those that don't believe as we do, who are looking to us for what Christianity really looks like and means. And we have to do one or the other. Either one, to be honest, consistent, and truthful, <laughs> we've got to start acting worse at church. I would suggest against that. Or we need to start acting better outside the building. And that's what I'm encouraging us to do. To make it consistent. To live a life based upon, built upon, living up to the pledges, the vows, the promises you've made. We've all made as Christians. And reinforced by the songs we sing. And underscored by the prayers that we offer in public and privately. Remember when Jesus posed the question, he made it very clear. Even somebody that says, I will not, if they end up going, they're the ones who do the Father's will. And even someone that sings with a beautiful melody and a beautiful voice, even someone who's made the best and most elaborate, eloquent promises, even someone who can outpray the best prayers in history, if they say, I go, sir, and do not go. They haven't done the will of the Father. As we close, I'll remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. When all comes down to it and the dust of history is settled for us, that's what will matter. Have we done what we could of the Father's will with what he's given us to work with? And all of us, and I mean every single one of us, including the one standing before you, can do a little better. Well, let's put our nose to the grindstone and do a little better. If you're here tonight and outside of Christ, change that. Or as a Christian, if you walked away, change that. If you need to come, why put it off? Come now as together we stand and sing.